This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Imagine you're on a beautiful desert island. You've unplugged from the digital world. No cell phone, no Twitter, no Facebook, no radio, and no TV. You can only take with you five books. Which five books would you choose and why? These are the questions we're asking the faculty on Season 3 of Office Hours. Joining us on the island today is Dr. Dennis Johnson, Professor of Practical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California. He's author of Him We Proclaim and Triumph of the Lamb, among other titles. All these titles and more are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Dennis, and welcome to the island. Thank you very much. So you're on a cruise ship. You're speaking at a gathering on a cruise ship. And the thing wrecks. And you washed up on a desert island. And like a good seminary professor, you had with you a large suitcase, which included, we're stipulating this, your English Bible, your Greek New Testament, your Hebrew Old Testament, and the Septuagint. Steve Ball requested the Septuagint. And beyond these, you've got five other books that you packed into your now rather substantial suitcase, which also had the properties that allowed it to float with you to the island. So you're on the island by yourself awaiting rescue, and you've got five books. What are the five books, and why did you choose them? Well, you didn't mention whether I could have a Greek or a Hebrew lexicon, so I might replace one of these five, because although I could probably get by in Greek with the New Testament Septuagint, I might need my Hebrew lexicon to get full benefit out of the Hebrew scriptures. I didn't pick that one, though. Oh, (laughs) well, Steve Baugh has a Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich in his suitcase. suitcase. Okay, well, good for him. Well, my five, the first one actually was the hardest one to choose, but I finally ended up choosing J.I. Packer's Concise Theology. The reason it was hard was that I sort of went back and forth between finding an edition of the Westminster Standards and the Three Forms of Unity, which I would really, really like to have along. But I went with Packer in part because throughout this little book, he is referencing the Reformed Confessions, and I just think he does it in such a clear, concise way, the whole range of doctrine in such a beautiful way. He wrote these articles originally as sort of sidebar articles for the what was first the New Geneva Study Bible, came out with the New King James Version, and then became the Reformation Study Bible with the English Standard Version. And basically, same articles are in the spirit of the Reformation Study Bible with the NIV. But it's just a good thing to keep feeding my mind and heart on the great truths of Scripture. And Packer does such a great job of saying so much so clearly and so biblically and confessionally. As you and I sit here recording this, John Stott went to be with the Lord yesterday, and John Wenham is gone. So that generation of British and largely, not entirely, Anglican evangelicals, Martin Lloyd-Jones and the rest are leaving us. What is there about Packer and his writing that you particularly enjoy? It's concise, obviously. It's in the title. and You've mentioned that quality. Are there other qualities about Packer's work and writing that you appreciate? Well, I think among the things I appreciate about Packer is the fact that having Having steeped his own mind in the rich writing of the Puritans, he brings that wealth of depth of reflection on Scripture, the great truths of Reformed theology, and the devotional passion of the Puritans in a way that clearly, clearly communicates to us in the now 21st century. So I appreciate that. If you weren't on an island, are there other works by Packer that you would enjoy rereading? Knowing God. 
Obviously, people think of that. It had a huge impact on me the first time I read it, to open my mind to the majesty of God and the privilege and the joy of knowing him and exploring the attributes of our God. I think that would be the one. When did you first read that? I think it must have been, I don't remember when it came out, but as a very young adult, maybe college, maybe soon after college. I remember exactly where I was. I don't think I moved much for two or three days. I was in Bend, Oregon, and it was the summer, I think, of 1981. And I'm not even sure how I came by the book, but I had read Stott's Basic Christianity, and I think I had read Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, and somehow I had Knowing God. And I did not have a television. I think I only had a radio, and it was long before the Internet, so there were very few distractions. And I sat down one evening and began reading it, and I don't think I moved. <laughs> I'm not surprised. It is that kind of a book that just captivates you and draws you in to the wonder of knowing the great triune God and creator. It's a great book. So if the listener has not read Knowing God, then he would be well served. And also uh, Packer's Concise Theology, both of which are in the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, and a number of other works by J.I. Packer. All right, what's the second volume on your list, Dennis? Well, I'm on a desert island, and I don't have internet connection, so I can't be preached to audibly. So I thought I'd want to have along Edmund P. Clowney's The Unfolding Mystery, Discovering Christ in the Old Testament. There are other great works by Clowney, but this one, I think, captures really what I appreciated from hearing Ed preach and teach of showing the unity of Scripture and its testimony to Christ. Obviously, that's had a huge impact on me, both when I was teaching New Testament and now as I teach preaching, and really just to feed my own heart and soul to be reminded by the words of this great servant of the Lord who has also passed from the church militant into the church triumphant to hear him expound biblical texts and show how the whole period of promise and all the scriptures there really bear testimony to the fulfillment in Christ. Why is it so important for preachers, for that truth, to seize the affections and interests and orientation of the preacher? I was actually teaching a bunch of preachers last week in a different part of the country, and the case I was making for them is we need to see Christ in all the Scripture because, as we see in Luke 24, Jesus taught his disciples, his apostles, to read Scripture that way. So as the author of the Old Testament Scriptures, through the Spirit of Christ, he's giving us the clue, he's giving us the key, really, to understand the unity of Scripture there. That's obviously the theme of New Covenant preaching as Paul announces his mission to proclaim Christ, uh, to preach Christ and Him crucified, nothing else. But also, it's only as we are transformed by the grace of the gospel on an ongoing basis, reminded of what Christ has done for us once for all in his obedience to the law in our place, his sacrifice under the law's curse and his resurrection, and his giving of the Spirit to transform us into his image. It's only as we are transformed and refreshed by the gospel that we can show God's people that that same gospel is the power of God for salvation, not just entry into the life of the believer, but really for our growth in godliness as well. It all flows from the gospel. So we need it, and our hearers need it. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Let's think just for a minute about that second part, about the hearers. Why is it so important for the hearers that the minister commit himself to preaching the text The way the text comes to us, the way the text is revealed, the way the story of redemption unfolds, why is that so important that he discipline himself to do that for the sake of the hearer of the sermon? I would say it flows out of the fact that, as Paul says, our calling as preachers, as pastors and preachers, is to be stewards 
of the mysteries of God, which means we don't have the authority to invent a message that might feel helpful to uh, the hearers. Uh, They might feel about some sermons, that was a great sermon because now I know what I'm supposed to do this week. I've got a list of things I need to work on or whatever their measure is. But we are stewards, which means we have we are entrusted with the treasure of God and accountable to him and therefore accountable to make sure as much as lies within us and dependence on the spirit that our hearers get the message he wants them to get because that's the message that brings life and sustains life in communion with him. Preaching Christ from all the scriptures as I have heard from Ed and, and read in this book is is really what my hearers need, whether they know it or not, because we need to be brought into communion and kept in communion in into deeper communion with our triune God. That's he, We're made for him. We're made for communion and fellowship with him. And only through Christ, the mediator of the covenant of grace, can we br- be brought into that kind of intimate uh, knowledge and thereby be transformed. I'm, I'm struck often by uh, going back to uh, Paul's discussion, Second Corinthians 3 and 4, and especially at the end of chapter 3, where he's contrasted Moses' privilege of going to Mount Sinai and seeing the glory of God, but then coming down the mountain and putting a veil over his face after he's delivered the law with the fact that in the new covenant, we all with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of the Lord in the preaching of the gospel and are therefore being transformed into that same image. That's what the Spirit uses to change us into the image of Christ. In the beginning, God said, let there be, and there was. God the Father created through his word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son is the Word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. God the Spirit works through the preaching of the Word. For 31 years, Westminster Seminary, California has stood for the truth and reliability of God's Word. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu. 760-480-8474 Westminster Seminary, California For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church Your third choice It's come late to me, but my third choice is the collection of Puritan prayers put together some years ago by Arthur Bennett published by Banner of Truth entitled The Valley of Vision I I grew up in an evangelical setting where the, the Puritans were presented as dour and condemning uh, morbidly introspective. There's probably some of that in them. <laughs> and uh, perhaps a good corrective to some of our more facile optimism about ourselves. But what I find in these prayers is this beautiful transparency. I mean, there, there is profound humility about the prayer's sin, but also a profound wonder at the glory of Christ. And so I, since it's laid out in short prayers, it, week by week or day by day, I I just use them to guide some of my own prayer life. And I find in them, and I'm sure it's because they've absorbed the prayer life of the inspired biblical canonical psalms, I I find that variety of appropriate responses to the revelation of God's holiness and his majesty, but also his his grace and his mercy that helps me to to keep my own prayer life in balance and, and focused on 
on the glory of God and the gospel. Are there particular prayers that you have enjoyed or have stuck with you? As I went back through it, I found that uh, the last time through, I had to put a little star by the prayer called Shortcomings. And uh, I just, as I read it, I thought this resonates with me. It says things like, my sin is to look on my faults and be discouraged or to look on my good and be puffed up. I'm sometimes discouraged by the way, but though winding and trying it is safe and short. Death dismays me, but my great high priest stands in its waters and will open me a passage, and beyond it is a better country. That kind of wrestling with either looking at my sin and being utterly discouraged, or looking at what things God is pleased to do through me that is good, and then becoming puffed up uh, just resonated with me. At their best, they understood sin in a profound way and dealt with it as honestly as any segment, we might say, of, of the history of the Christian church. And at the same time, at their best, they really understood grace. Yes. Before we can get grace, we have to know sin. And we have to really get to grips with what it is, honestly. But having done that, now you're in a place where you can begin to see, by the grace of God, what grace really is. Exactly, exactly, yeah. The darkness of seeing what we're really like uh, makes the glory of Christ shine more brightly in our own hearts and lives and minds, I think, yeah. So in the Valley of Vision, it, it's not just devotional literature. It's It's got real depth to it. It's There's... there's theology in there. It's practical theology, I might say. Yes, it really is theology applied to the struggles of my own heart in a very profound way. Well, Reformed folks have always prayed while they studied and studied while they prayed, and it's it's a, a beautiful harmony. Wow, I can't believe we're already at the fourth volume. The fourth volume, interestingly, illustrates your point that Puritan piety is not sort of unique among the Puritans. It's also 17th century. It's the collection of poems and writings by George Herbert, who, 17th century Anglican pastor, not particularly associated, I think, with the Puritan movement in the Church of England. But uh, again, I find in Herbert this amazing skill with words this amazing ability as the other metaphysical poets had. I'm an English major, so that I was introduced to Herbert in my undergraduate work. Skill with words, brilliance with metaphor and imagery, and at the same time so profoundly devotional, ruthless with himself and seeing his own sin and weakness, clear-eyed and seeing his need, but also uh, these wonderful blasts of insight into uh, the grace of Christ and the grace of God in Christ. As you were talking, it struck me that there's a sharp contrast between the way we use words now and the way someone like Herbert used words. I was thinking we we live in a very wordy age. Text comes at us almost constantly now. Yes. Through Twitter, through texts on our smartphones, uh, Facebook, blog posts, and there's a sort of word inflation now, and we probably have lost the ability to value economy of words. So talk a little bit about Herbert and his use of words. Well, as you say, the more words you have, the more each word is, seems to be cheapened in our setting. And Herbert makes every word count. That's part of the rigor of the kind of poetry that he was writing. And to paint a picture with with just a few words is uh, very difficult. It takes sometimes several readings over to get all that Herbert is striving at in some of his poems. But uh, once you get it and you see it, it's beautiful. 
There is a poem that I actually read to uh, students in the Ministry of the Word course, and then go, students, of course, go online and find it so they can download it because I don't give it to them. <laughs> One that I read here is called Aaron after the first high priest of Israel. And the first stanza talks about his clothing. And the second, Herbert looks at himself and says he's not there. Uh, the third and the fourth point away from himself to the true great high priest who clothes him. And then uh, the fourth says, I'm ready to minister. Let me read it, but I want to say one more thing, too. Since my wife and I, Jane and I, both were English majors, both introduced to Herbert, when I went into my first pastorate, she, with her beautiful handwriting, wrote out the key stanzas of this poem so that I could hang it right by my study door as I went out after the elders and I had prayed before morning worship to remind myself. Aaron, holiness on the head, Light and perfections on the breast, harmonious bells below, raising the dead to lead them unto life and rest. Thus are true Aaron's dressed. Profaneness in my head, defects and darkness in my breast, a noise of passions ringing me for dead unto a place where is no rest. Poor priest, thus am I dressed. Only another head I have, another heart and breast, another music making live, not dead, without whom I could have no rest. In him I am well dressed. Christ is my only head, my alone only heart and breast, my only music striking me even dead, that to the old man I may rest and be in him new dressed. So holy in my head perfect and light in my dear breast, my doctrine tuned by Christ, who is not dead, but lives in me while I do rest. Come, people, Aaron's dressed. It seems prosaic after that to ask you to talk about the value of poetry, because if someone has heard that and can't see the value. But nevertheless, I persist. We live in a time when poetry, for many people, is practically unknown. It's probably been a few decades since poetry was regularly read in public schools and maybe in other sorts of schools as well. I don't know. Talk about the value of poetry. I would say among the values of poetry are, first of all, the use of words to paint pictures. We believe that God speaks his word in words that go into our ears. He does attest in the biblical times the word with visible signs. He still gives us signs and seals of the covenant and baptism and uh, the elements of the supper. But he preaches into our minds, onto our imagination, through our ears. And uh, poets find ways to paint pictures with words. I think reading poetry helps us partly to read the book of Revelation, which, as you know, is one of my other loves, that God speaks in those vivid visions, sometimes troubling, but always vivid visions in John. And I think because people in other eras learned to hear words and have them paint a picture on their imaginations, they were well equipped to get the message the way God delivered the message in, say, the book of Revelation. Of course, the Psalms are always showing us things about the Lord through the imagery and even through the experience of a thunderstorm or the shepherd's care and protection for his sheep. So I think that's one thing. It, it also, because poets discipline themselves, as we said earlier, to speak much in few words, as preachers, it's good for us to think about not just filling space with words, but making our words count. We know ultimately it's the spirit who drives the word home. And we're not trying to impress people with our eloquence. 
but we also want to be as serviceable as stewards as we possibly can be. So I would say that would be another important purpose. And then especially reading poetry aloud, which in our culture, so much of what we even read, we read silently. But reading poetry aloud helps us to get a feel for the sound of the language. And I think that's an important thing for preachers to remember as well. If someone wants to hear well-chosen words, one thing that comes to mind, obviously, Dennis's devotional messages in chapel that are recorded and broadcast through the seminary would be an excellent resource. I've also been very, very blessed by Howell Jones's devotional messages, which are also available through the seminary at wscal.edu. Just click on the devotions link and just to listen to Howell's use of language. And from the moment he arrived, it struck me how carefully he chose his words and how powerful those words were spaced, sometimes separated by significant pauses. But a well-chosen word at the right time is a powerful tool. I think of a homely illustration as a terrible carpenter. I've, you know, hammered around nails many times, but I've seen skilled carpenters strike a nail perfectly. And uh, obviously, the skilled carpenter is a much more effective workman than the sloppy amateur. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Okay, your fifth volume. My fifth volume is three. I can get away with that, right? Sure. Okay. It's, it's one, one work. It's one work. It is uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I laugh because you're the third of our faculty members. So that's interesting. Now we'll have to keep a running toll to see who uh, brings Tolkien. That's fascinating. And now I, I feel terrible because I have yet – I I've read <laughs> The Hobbit to the girls, and I started on the first volume of Lord of the Rings – but I have not progressed, and now I'm feeling convicted. You need to find some place where there is no TV and Internet and spend about a week in them. I read them first during college. This is when I do remember where I read them because I was uh, selling dictionaries door-to-door in a community outside New Orleans and did not want to sell dictionaries door-to-door for the summer but needed to make at least enough money to get back to college in the fall. And so uh, my escape every evening was uh, the Fellowship of the Ring and then the Two Towers and then the Return of the King. And I read it many, many hours. What a powerful thing. I hadn't read it again for probably a couple decades, and I came back to it and just marveled again. It takes The Hobbit to a new depth. The Hobbit is, as you say, you read it to your children, and I think it's on the bridge between children, mythopoeic fantasy, and adult mythopoeic fantasy. And The Lord of the Rings is just that much deeper, richer. It takes some patience, but Tolkien's use of language, the way in which you can see Scripture impacting his own imagination, it's not allegory. So, you know, you shouldn't be reading it for one-to-one correspondences, but you hear these just amazing echoes of biblical truths and gospel truths. It's powerful stuff that feed our imaginations, furnish our imaginations with uh, truth and beauty. Are there particular characters, or is there a character with which you particularly identify? Well, I think the thing that draws me to The Lord of the Rings, among other things, the beauty of the language, is the fact that the whole destiny of Middle-earth rests on the faithfulness of little hobbits, and particularly, of course, in the big drama on Frodo, but also his good friend and gardener, Sam Gamgee, that they must be faithful, that the powerful ones, Gandalf, who starts as Gandalf the Grey and then goes through death and resurrection, comes out Gandalf the White. Oh, I shouldn't tell you that. (laughs) Oh, I spoiled it. But, uh, you know, he's, I mean, he goes through death and resurrection. So, I mean, obviously you hear images there, but the crucial battle does not depend on this mighty Gandalf. It depends on the weakness of the little ones 
I actually picked out a quickie toward the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring when the elves are called by Elrond and others to decide what's to be done with this mighty ring. Some are against trying to destroy it. They think we can use it against the enemy. It's folly to try to destroy it. And Gandalf says, let folly be our cloak, a veil before the eyes of the enemy, for he is very wise and weighs all things to a nicety in the scales of his malice. But the only measure that he knows is desire, desire for power. And so he judges all hearts into his heart. The thought will not enter that any will refuse it. That is the power to use the ring that having the ring, we may seek to destroy it. If we seek this, we shall put him out of reckoning. He'll be utterly confused. And then Elrond responds, neither strength nor wisdom will carry us far upon the road that is hard. This quest may be attempted by the weak with as much hope as the strong, yet such is off the course of deeds that move the wheels of the world. Small hands do them because they must, while the eyes of the great are elsewhere. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.